one of the most physically challenging and life-threatening feats that you could make today is to climb Mount Everest. Uh, I was educated this week. It's not, the ho- it's not the hardest mountain to climb, but it is the tallest. Uh, most people that climb it take about a year in advance of training and physical exercise and all those things to prepare themselves. It can cost, it, it costs on average, this is the median, about $45,000 to climb it when you factor in gear and paying for guides and getting there and all of that stuff. Um, and, and once you get there, uh, it, it takes about uh, a, a month uh, or a little bit more than a month after you acclimatize yourself to base clamp, camp to get to the top of Mount Everest. Most people that attempt to climb it do not make it. However, if you can overcome all odds, if you can get the right weather and you have those tens of thousands of dollars in your pocket to spend on this and you have the physical fitness, you're in perfect shape, even if you get all the way to the top, you, you can't stay there. Most people that, that go through all of this and spend that money and time and effort to climb to the top only stay at the peak for like 10 to 15 minutes because you have to keep in track, you have to keep track of the oxygen to make sure you have enough to get back down. All that time, all that effort, all that money for 15 minutes. And as we look at Psalm 24 today, uh, we see in in verse 3, it asks these two questions. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, who can get to God? And who can stay there? Our answers to those questions matter from the beginning of the Bible to the end. To ascend the hill of the Lord is to approach him, to be with him to be in his presence, to approach the Lord in his holy place requires a lot out of a person. And not everyone is fit to climb it, just like not everyone can decide to just climb Mount Everest tomorrow. But since Yahweh God knows this, knows that it is difficult to ascend his hill, he has made a way for us to ascend to him, to worship him, to be with him to dwell with him in his holy place. It's not just getting to him, it's staying with him forever. In fact, this is the the major kind of overarching story of the entire Bible. It's the story of God making a way for his people to dwell with him. We see this uh, in Eden. He walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. We see this uh, in, in, on Mount Sinai, when he comes down in fire and smoke and speaks to Moses, he, he then dwells in the tabernacle in the middle of the people of Israel. Later, he sets his glory down in the temple. He comes down to earth as a man and walks among the people. Now, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, he dwells, his spirit dwells in the hearts of those who he's chosen for himself. And someday, if you are among those people that the Spirit is dwelling in, we look forward to the day when Eden will be restored and we will dwell with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And so the big idea this morning is that the King of glory descended to us so that we can ascend to him. Uh, Would you please read with me Psalm 24. 
a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? It's the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once again, the big idea is that the king of glory descended to us so that we can ascend to him. Every time we read the Bible, we should be asking ourselves the question, what what does this passage teach me about God? And Psalm 24 has a lot to say about that. In verses 1 and 2, we see that he is the king of the earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He owns the world. He created it. He established it. He rules over everything that was created. Or as it says here, the fullness thereof. One commentator says that these verses focus on the stabilizing influence of Yahweh's creative and sustaining power. In other words, it's, it's Yahweh, God, who created the earth. It's him who sustains it. And everything that lives in it. He is both the almighty creator and also the never changing sustainer of the universe. We jump down to verses 5 and 6. We see that he is called the God of salvation and the God of Jacob. What does this say about him? Well, he's the God that saves his people. Whenever the Old Testament talks about the God of Jacob, or sometimes you'll see the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's reminding the people of God of the covenant that he made with them, that he would be their God and that they would be his people. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the the patriarchs, the founders of Israel. And so to say that God is the God of Jacob is to say that he is the God of his people. There's a relationship between them that has been solidified in covenant. And by the way, you'll notice that uh, the Lord, that word Lord is spelt in all caps in this psalm. Uh, Anytime you see the Lord in all caps uh, in your Bible, it's talking about his covenant name, Yahweh. This is the name that he reveals himself with to Abraham and to Moses, the people he covenants himself with. This, he is the God of his people. As we move down the rest of the psalm in verses 7 to 10, we see him called the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord of hosts. The same word for hosts can be translated as armies. And so uh, if this name, the Lord of hosts, is talking about he's the God of angel armies. He commands legions and wins battles. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He can never lose. 
He will never lose, and he ha- never has. This is the God who created the earth, who covenants with his people. And then we see as well that he doesn't just stay with his, or he doesn't just create it and then leave the globe to spin on its own, but he is involved with his creation. He descends to them, he enters in, and he fights for them. Then the language we see here, the phrase, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors. Again, just talking about opening the way for the Lord's presence to come in. The temple could never contain the fullness of the Lord's glory. Its doors would be swung wide open to allow him in. And as high and mighty as he is, he still wants his people to dwell with him. David's time when he wrote this, he, his presence was especially manifest in the tabernacle and, and later uh, in the temple. His highest point in Jerusalem, in the middle of his people. He dwells with his people. Next part of the big idea is that the king descended to us. In order to understand why he had to descend, we have to not only understand who he is, that he is the king of glory that rules the world, but also to understand who we are and what we are like. Who who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Like I mentioned earlier, how, how we answer this question matters. Who can get to God? Who can approach this strong, mighty, powerful king who created everything that we know, these, these questions should cause us to pause and, and humbly reflect on, on whether, on the state of our hearts, am, am I really worthy to approach this king? Who am I that the highest king of the earth would welcome me into his presence? Our, our answers to these questions matter. We can answer this que- these questions wrongly by kind of falling off the side of the road into uh, one of the ditches on, that, on those sides. One extreme is to think too low of God's wrath upon sin. We could, we could answer anyone. Anyone can, can get to God. Anyone can ascend the hill of the Lord. It doesn't matter if I've, I've sinned and I keep on sinning. He, he'll forgive me. He'll deal with it. While it's true that the Lord's gracious upon the sinner, sinful people like you and I, we can can have this kind of cavalier, sort of nonchalant attitude towards our sin. Towards how unworthy we are, how in and of ourselves we're so unworthy to approach this holy king of glory. Would you, would you waltz into to Buckingham Palace and, and demand to see King Charles wearing torn jeans and muddy shoes and a stained t-shirt? Probably not. And, and in a much more serious way, approaching the king of glory on his holy hill requires reverence with a humble recognition of our sin and our dependence on him. How much he hates sin and loves righteousness. You could also take this too far the other way and say no one, no one can approach this king of glory. It's thinking too little of his grace upon the sinner. I'm far too sinful 
way too unworthy, way too unlovable, way too big a disappointment and a failure. He doesn't have any interest in me. While it's true that the Lord hates sin with everything in him, there is still grace and forgiveness available to sinful men and women like all of us here. Psalm 24 tells us that taking either of those answers to the extreme are, are neither, neither of them are completely true. Both of them you know, contain elements of truth, but they miss the, the whole biblical picture on all of this. If we look down at verses 3 and 4 again, it says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who, who can approach God? Those who are clean and pure, it says here. This isn't talking about personal hygiene. It's not talking about washing your hands all the time. It's talking about sin. So clean hands, what does that mean? Well, the, well, the Old Testament is full of, of language that talks about cleanliness and being clean and unclean. To be clean, you had to avoid sin and follow all of God's laws. There are laws regarding sacrifice and how many of those you had to do per year and what kinds of sacrifices you needed to make to atone for your sin. There were feasts that you had to participate in uh, several times a year. There were dietary restrictions, what you could eat and couldn't eat. There were just your general lifestyle. Why all these laws? Because God is perfect and he will not be in the presence of sin. And so in order to approach this king of glory in the tabernacle or in the temple, you had to be ritually clean and forgiven of sin and in right standing with all of these commands. To have clean hands is the measure of a person's outward behavior on life. What, do they live well? Are, are they actually following these laws? Does their life reflect who God created them to be? But if that's all we talk about, we can get legalistic. It's not just about doing all these things and checking the right boxes to get to God. It's also about having a pure heart that desires the Lord. So a pure heart does not lift up his soul to what is false and doesn't swear deceitfully. Lifting up your soul to what is false is, is, is worshiping idols. Any time that you and I sin, we have turned our hearts from worshiping the Lord to something else. So maybe for you, it's, it's money or, or comfort or your reputation or a, approval from someone. There's all sorts of things that we can turn our hearts to and worship in and put in this place that only the Lord should be in our lives. But a pure heart instead worships the Lord alone. King of glory alone. Looking at verse 6, this generation that seeks the face of the God of Jacob is the one whose hands are clean and whose heart is pure. So in other words, how do we get clean hands and a pure heart? We seek the face of God. This is a very significant statement to make in this psalm. Um, in Exodus 33, Moses is on top of Mount Sinai. 
And he, and he pleads with the Lord. He pleads, Lord, show me your glory. And God allows him to see his glory, but only his back. Because as God tells Moses, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And so to literally seek the face of God was, was a death sentence. Uh, his glory it was too overwhelming, too, too magnificent, too incomprehensible and beyond our scope of imagination to fully see it face to face, to see his face. And still, to seek his face was a desire um, that, that the people of Israel uh, were called to have and, and what we should all have, like Moses begging the Lord, show me your glory. Seeking his face in the Psalms, this, we see this phrase a few times, um, was just to be completely devoted to pursuing God, to loving him completely, to living only for him and not ourselves. And so if we need clean hands and a pure heart to approach him, and if in order to get those clean hands, we need to seek his face, but we can't see his face without dying. How can we become clean? How can we become pure? The bad news is that there's not a way to do this by ourselves. If you look at the story of the Old Testament, you'll see that for thousands of years, not a single person was able to meet all of these laws perfectly. They all sinned. They all fell short. Not a single person was able to remain perfectly clean, perfectly pure. Every single person, try as they might, eventually failed. Even David, who wrote this psalm, he was called a man after God's own heart. He was a murderer and an adulterer. Well, in just your case, you're thinking right now, well, at least I'm not as bad as David. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't committed adultery. Jesus says in Matthew 5 that sinful anger against your brother is equivalent to murder. That lust is equivalent to adultery. We cannot, cannot in and of ourselves live good enough lives to be clean and pure. A single drop of dye in a glass of water makes the whole thing cloudy. We cannot in and of ourselves all the time, 100% of the time, desire only the Lord perfectly. We all sin and turn our hearts to worship something else. And so, if you can't do something on your own, if you're hopeless to complete this task, what other choice do you have than to get help? Because we cannot, in and of ourselves, ever become clean and pure enough to approach the King of Glory on his holy hill and stay there. And because he knows this, God does something that is almost unimaginable. He comes to us. Jesus, who is God himself, comes to earth and is born as a human boy, fully God, fully man. There, Mary and Joseph were at that stable in Nazareth, face to face with God like no one ever had been before. 
Even Moses on Mount Sinai, the man in the Old Testament who was closer to God than anyone ever had been, was not able to see his face. But Jesus, the God-man, he grows up and he lives a life unlike anyone ever had. He never sins. He follows every single one of God's commands to a perfect T. He performs miracles. He forgives sin. He raises the dead to life. This whole life was to prove that he is indeed God in human form, that only God could live a life perfectly clean and perfectly pure, never sinning, never desiring anything but the Lord's will and his glory. And then Jesus, the only one fit to ascend the hill of the Lord, instead ascends a hill called Calvary, where he's killed on a cross. In the moment of his death, he, he pays the penalty that sin demands all of humanity. Jesus, fully God and fully man, took the wrath of God that you and I deserve for our uncleanness, for our impurity, and bestows his righteousness unto you and me. Jesus is he who has clean hands. Jesus is he who has a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and doesn't swear deceitfully. And because of his death on the cross, we are those who receive blessing from the Lord, like it says in verse 5, and righteousness from the God of our salvation. Pure, clean, unadulterated righteousness that transcends any good we could ever do and any bad we have ever done. Righteousness that allows us to ascend the hill of the Lord and to be with him in his holy place. Our assurance of forgiveness said this this morning from 2 Corinthians, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose to life from the grave because of Christ's death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, and his ascension into glory. The New Testament says that God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, by taking on the form of a servant, by dying the death of a criminal, is exalted to the position of king. Every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And so, in light of this, in light of what Christ has done, we can answer these questions that Psalm 24 asks with much more clarity than David could. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Jesus. Who can stand in his holy place? Jesus. Who is this king of glory? Jesus Christ the Lord. And we can also ask those questions again. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? In the, it was in the first person. The, the answer of Psalm 24 remains the same. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Again, in our own power, it, it, 
It's impossible to do this. But the way to become clean and pure has been made possible through Jesus. And so instead of trying to measure up to this impossibly high standard of the law, we turn to Jesus, the only clean and pure one, ask him to forgive our sins, and we confess that he is Lord and Savior. We commit our lives to seeking him in him alone. And when we do this, we can receive righteousness from the God of, his sal- the God of our salvation. We can answer those questions in the first person because of Jesus. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Because of Jesus, I can. Who can stand in this holy place? Because of Jesus, I can. Who has cleans, clean hands and a pure heart? Because of Jesus, I am justified and counted as righteous. Through Christ in me, my hands are clean, my heart is purified. I have received righteousness from the God of my salvation. Now, we can have cleanness and purity like Jesus has and has. Now we can seek his face. Now we can ascend his hill. Now we can stand in his holy place forever. If you have trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, all of these things are true. It's a comforting truth to grab hold of. And if you are not trusting in him alone for your salvation, this is a warning for you. You you can't get clean by yourself. But through Jesus you can. It's not too late. Someday it will be. Another thing that has changed because of Jesus, one other thing that causes us to read this psalm through a a lens that David couldn't, what is it? Well, we don't worship the Lord in the temple anymore. We don't have to go to a specific place to worship him. This doesn't mean that church isn't necessary, and I know you all know this because you're here, but it's not only on Sundays between 10 and 11.30 a.m., that we worship this king of glory. So what happened to needing the temple? What happened to the Lord's dwelling place where his spirit was manifest? Well, because of Jesus, the spirit of God dwells in the hearts of his people. Those of you who have been saved through faith by grace have become temples of the Holy Spirit. His desire to dwell with his people hasn't gone away. In fact, he's closer to his people than ever before. He lives inside his people. Oh, if I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit, if he lives in me, then what do I need the church for? Can I, can I worship him at home? Again, this isn't an excuse for individualized Christianity. Ephesians 2 says that you're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens and members of the household of God. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This does not sound like an individualized gig. The church, the whole body of believers, joining themselves together as a holy temple in the Lord. Charles Spurgeon addresses people who, who think that they can be Christians by themselves without the church. Quoting them, he says, I don't attend to give myself to any church. And and I say, now why not? And they answer, because I can be just as good a Christian without it. 
And I say, are you quite clear about that? You can be a good, as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by being obedient? There's a brick. What is, what is the brick made for? It is to build a house. It is of no use for the brick to tell you that it's just as good a brick while it's been kicking about on the ground by itself as it would be as part of a house. Actually, it's a good-for-nothing brick. So, you Rolling Stone Christians, I don't believe that you're answering the purpose for which Christ saved you. You're living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live. So what's the point of all this? Why would Jesus die? Why would God descend? Why does he go through all of this pain and effort to get us access to himself? Because the king of glory wants his people to dwell with him. It's the moving plan of redemption Throughout the whole Bible, he walks with his people in Eden. He comes down in fire and smoke on Mount Sinai. He dwells in the tabernacle in the middle of Israel. He sets his glory down in the temple. He comes to earth as a man and walks among his people. Now his spirit dwells in the hearts of those he's chosen for himself. And one day, soon, he will descend one last time. One last time. King of glory, the Lord of hosts, will descend one last time with his angel armies and defeat sin forever, ending the war once and for all against sin and Satan and death. He will eradicate any lingering sin, any uncleanness, any impurity, and the king of glory will establish for himself an everlasting kingdom and reign over it forever where his plan to make his plan to make a way for his people to dwell with him will have finally, finally, finally been completed. We will stand and worship and work and feast in endless joy in his holy place. And this will be for a lot longer than a 15-minute moment on top of Mount Everest. It will be forever. He will be our God. And we will be his people. This is the hope of the Christian life. The king of glory descended to us so that one day we can ascend with him. Please pray with me. Father, you are worthy of everything we could ever praise you for. You created the earth. You established it. You sustain it by your power. Lord, you are perfectly holy. Set apart so high above us, Lord. And yet, Father, you have made a way for us to dwell with you forever by the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Would we never take that for granted? Would you help us Lord, whether we have been Christians for decades or mere minutes, to never take that for granted, would you, would you help us to revel in glory and the beauty of the simple gospel that God came to man 
so that man can go to God. You are the King of glory. We will worship you forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.